everybody, I'm Colin. And my name is Javen. And this is the Abstract Podcast, where we talk about ideas that matter. Today on the show, I sat down with Valerie Shepard. Valerie is the only daughter of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who were made famous through um, martyrdom of Jim Elliot and his four friends in the Amazon jungle. So today I got to sit down and have a conversation with her about what it giving her firsthand account of what her parents' story was like and what it's been like for her living in the shadow of that. As always, we're sponsored by Hershberger's Bakery, so we want to give them a shout out. Um, I was at Hershberger's just for lunch the other day. I had the club sandwich and it was impeccable as always. So we're really grateful for Hershberger's for their support of our show. And next up is Colin's conversation with Valerie Shepard. Well, Mrs. Valerie Shepard, it is an honor to have you here on our podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So welcome to TFC. Thank you. Um, So let's jump right in. I know we don't have a lot of time, so let's jump right in. You were sharing this morning, um, obviously for our listeners who don't know, you are the daughter of the only child of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. so let's. You talked a little bit about your parents' background at Wheaton College and their long and complicated love relationship, um, and how that fit into their callings to the missions field. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'll put it in the show notes where people can go and listen to you talk there if they want to hear more information. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's jump right away and let's talk about. Okay, so your mom graduated a year before your dad mm-hmm. from Wheaton College, yes. correct? Okay. Mm-hmm. So how long um, after that is it until they get married? They both arrive in Ecuador in 1952, so she graduated in 48. Okay. When they started taking walks together in Ecuador because of their Spanish classes they had together, my father announced that he thought it might be five more years that had already wow. been. Wow. <laughs> it had already been four years since he, had, since he had said that to her, that he loved her. So <clears throat> it, that really broke my mother's heart. She just thought, how... How's he going to find out in five years if he doesn't know now? Mm -hmm. He just couldn't explain himself. He just said, I just know that there's some kind of sense of God's giving me me the go-ahead or the green light. So he had been told by another missionary who had lived in the jungle with his wife that the Amazon jungle is just not an easy place for women to live. Mm. They can't handle the heat or the mosquitoes or whatever. Just It's just too difficult. Mm. So he had that in his mind, that single men needed to go to the jungle, and he knew he wanted to go to primitive Indians. But, of course, they both were in prayer about it, and there were some tears on both of their parts because they didn't know. They didn't know. Mm. And uh, they knew that they loved each other, but they didn't know... God's timing at all. And so what really did make my father aware that she was strong physically was that she could climb 10, 12,000 peak mountains with him. Hmm. They had great hikes together, glorious views from the Andes Mountains. Yeah, so this is all taking place in Ecuador. In Quito. Mm -hmm. In Quito is where they had their Spanish lessons for six months they were together. This is after they both graduated. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they both got there in 1952. Okay. So they both knew that they would be going to some Indians, but mm-hmm. there are different groups of Indians, 
And my father's natural place was to go to where this missionary had been with his wife. His name was Dr. Tidmarsh. And so he brought Pete Fleming, another single man, down to work with him among the Quechuas. He had to learn Quechua, so did Pete. And he had actually encouraged Pete to break off his engagement to a girl Hmm. in the States because he said, we're going to be living in the jungle and there's no telling how difficult it will be for the women. So we've at least got to have one year working among the Indians by ourselves and see what it's like. And so they built buildings. They built a missionary home thinking that Ed McCulley and his wife would Mm -hmm. come and be there as the mission missionaries to that station. And then they built a school and a chapel and they built some kind of a storage building And there was a beautiful view of this huge river. It was a tributary, I believe, of the Amazon. Mm -hmm. But they were up on a plateau, and that's where the airstrip had been built. So fast forward about eight months from when he first got there, the rains came. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a wet season and a dry season in the Amazon, but even in the dry season it still rains. It just doesn't rain as much as, as the rainy season. So they saw the flood, they saw the river rising, and it was becoming more and more likely to be a flood, and then it began to dig away at the cliff. That was what they were up on top of, Mm. plateau that they could see this river from. And then parts of the cliff began to fall, and then they lost the missionary house, they lost the school, they lost the chapel, and they lost the uh, storage building. They had, when they saw that the cliff was starting to give way, uh, they had moved as many pieces of machinery, like a saw, a kerosene refrigerator, different things, a generator. Mm -hmm. They got that away from the house and into the jungle as far as they could. Very heavy stuff to move, but they had Indians helping. And in three days, as the cliff kept on falling away, all the buildings were gone. Wow. So he had... In his, okay, January of that year, that was 1953, mm-hmm. he, had, he had gone to propose to my mother. Okay. Because he had realized that because my mother had such a strong constitution and was physically healthy mm-hmm. just all the time, she hardly ever got sick in her whole life, he thought, she's going to be able to withstand jungle life. But I, he said in his journal, I won't know when I'm supposed to get married to her. I know I'm supposed to marry her now. But I don't know when, unless I have some catastrophe happen. And this was like two weeks before the flood. He said oh. he said that in his journal. Then the oh, flood wow. came, and he thought, okay, there it this is. is God's sign to me that I'm supposed to go ahead and uh, plan the wedding. And, of course, he was writing to my mother, and she was with another group of Indians on the other side of the Andes. Okay. So they were, of course, from January of 1953 when they got engaged— both of them writing to each other, both of them longing mm-hmm. to be together. When was the wedding going to be? It was that flood that... But then the flying out of Shandia to Quito, Shandia was their station, was always a challenge. You mm-hmm. couldn't get the MAF plane any day you wanted. Oh, okay. So he always had to wait for whoever else was needing the plane, and the plane was going to other mission stations too. So it ended up that they finally realized October would be the free enough month Mm. for them to go up to Ecuador. And they got married on my father's birthday, October 8th. And he had planned somehow in that week before, um, reserved a hotel up in Panama, um, in Costa Rica. 
and they left on the plane. It was a civil wedding, so nothing oh, church. Right. Yeah, and he okay. was kind of against all the fluff and flowers mm-hmm. and stuff of weddings. So he had told my mother that, and she said, I'm happy to get married whether I'm wearing a white dress or whether I'm wearing a suit. So she, all she had was a suit, and they got married in a civil service. And Ed and Mary Lou McCulley okay. attended, and so did Dr. Tidmarsh, the one that had told him that women shouldn't live in the jungle. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So then so it was becoming obvious to everybody that they were going to go to the Quechua Indians and go to that station, but everything had to be rebuilt. Okay. So now let's fast forward a little bit. You're born how many years after they're married? A year and a half. 1953 is when they got married, but October. And then I got 1955. Is that two years? Okay. A little less than two years. A little less than two years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then how old are you when they decide to make the move to the Alka? Okay. They they didn't make the move together to the Alkas. What he did was he was talking with Nate Saint. Pete Fleming had been his partner mm-hmm. with the Quechua's, and of course, when he told Pete, I'm going to get married, you're going to have to find another station because this will be... Well, at first, it was unclear as to whether that would be my mother and his station. Anyway, there's so many details, and it can get quite confusing, but right. um, Pete went back to the States and re-engaged the girl that he had. Oh, okay. Yes, he, he realized if <laughs> Jim's getting married, <laughs> I guess he we gets can... gets two, too. <laughs> so... So he went back to the States, and I'm not sure when their wedding was, but um, once they got married, and they had a three-week honeymoon, then they moved to Puyupungu, which is where Ed and Mary Lou were, and they had been discussing, you know, who's going to take this station and who's going to take Shandia. Well, my father decided that since he'd gotten to know those Indians in Shandia and Ed didn't know them and he'd learned the language well, he and my mother should go there. And he knew during that first year before he married her that the women definitely needed a woman to help mm. them, to teach them. And so that was another reason why he realized, I need a wife here. Um, so they lived in Puyupungu in a tent while a house was begun in Shandia. And my father built the plans for the house. He had gone to trade school in, in architecture oh, okay. in high school. And so they had talked a lot about what the house was to have in it. And he began that sometime during that 53, 54, and I think they mm-hmm. moved in in the spring of 54, and they moved into Shandia. Did that answer your question? Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> so how involved, how much is your knowledge of the Alcas. Of the Waodani. Yeah. Um, they, my father had been praying for the Waodani ever since he was in college, and so had my mother. They knew they were a savage, primitive tribe. So my father contacted um, Pete, Ed McCulley, Cully, Roger McDerian, Roger Udarian, and Nate Saint, those four he mm-hmm. thought he should bring in on this desire to meet the Alcas and to m- meet them with gifts. So because Nate Saint was the only pilot for MAF, he took each of the men over the village. First he had to find the village, and there's mm-hmm. a teeny tiny little village. And th- he took each one over with a megaphone. My father had learned a few Alka phrases from an Alka woman who had fled the tribe, also lived on a plantation near Puyapungu. And this woman, Dayuma, um, taught him a phrase, we want to see you. Another phrase, we want to be your friends. Something like, we're coming to see you. I don't know the exact phrases, but anyway, he, those were the phrases that each of the men got to shout out of the micro- megaphone mm-hmm. when the pilot flew low enough over the village for them to 
drop a gift. And so he designed a, a bucket on the end of a cable. And as the plane circled, the cable went down to the center mm -hmm. and stood still in the middle. So the Alcas could take the gift mm -hmm. out and they gave them anything practical they could think of. Right. Um, a pot. I don't remember. Maybe a t-shirt. There were a couple of t-shirts given. Mm -hmm. Of course, they didn't wear clothing yet. But um, just several things they thought the Alcas would enjoy. And again, I should say Waodani because that's what they want to be called. They want to be called that. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Waodani means the people. So they actually went 15 weeks in a row dropping a gift. How old are you at this time? I'm between 10 months. Uh, no, excuse me. Between being a baby up till about um, eight months. Okay. Because the actual month that they moved in, they'd landed near this little village, was when I was 10 months old and they were okay. killed that week. So anyway, 15 weeks before that. So I don't remember him. And, you know, I was mm -hmm. six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 months. Um, they dropped these gifts and the Alcas began to not only happily take them out of the bucket, but began to put their own gift mm -hmm. back in the bucket. So a monk roasted monkey's paw or leg or arm hmm. and uh, a comb that they made for their own hair and a pet parrot, a live pet parrot they tied to a little stick they stuck in the bottom of the bucket and so anything they could think of that they thought would be nice gifts. Right. Yeah. So okay, so you're you're only about 10 months old when your father is killed. Right. So talk a little bit about what that's like. You're growing up cuz your m mother decides and your mother documents her journey very mm -hmm. well. She was a prolific writer mm -hmm. as well. She's got, you said, over 30 books mm -hmm. written. Mm -hmm. So I direct our audience there. Um, so she documents what it was like for her. But talk about what it was like for you growing up with that knowledge that your father was killed by these people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your mother actually moves there as well. Right. So when I'm still a baby, um, about two years old, these two women come out of the tribe fleeing the violence that this this tribe was known for and they're, they're fleeing for safety and they arrive at a quichua house which was three hours walk from our house so a quichua came running to my mother to say some alcas have arrived all of the men are probably in the forest ready to kill us because they just mm. knew the alcas killed and they were scared to death so my mother gets her tape recorder and her notebook and just beats it down that trail and meets these two Alka women and they're they have nothing in their hands they have no clothes on they have no plans or can talk to anybody in Quechua they only know their own language so somebody runs to tell Dayuma mm. two Alkas have come so Dayuma knows her own language of course she has learned Quechua so she can interpret for my mother and Dayuma invited Rachel Saint to come so a period of a couple of days my mother and Rachel Saint both go to meet these two Alka women Mm -hmm. I'm kept by the maid that my mother had in her house. Um, the first time she went down by herself, then she went and got somebody to bring me to the house. We spent a couple of nights there in the Quechua house with these Alcas. And again, as the Quechuas were all scared to death of the Alcas, they were so afraid that they'd be attacked at night, which is what the mm -hmm. Alcas often did. <clears throat> but God seemed to give my mother confidence enough to or she did have the confidence in God's protection and she had prayed that somehow the way would be opened and now that these men had been killed there were no other men to go and meet these Alcas. Mm -hmm. um, I think Pete Fleming was still in the States 
uh, and so I'm sorry he'd been killed with Ed and my right. father but all of these widows are left and so my mother is still praying for this opportunity for these Alcas to know the Lord and she had actually suggested to the four other men that were with them at Christmas before they were killed she said what about if a husband and a wife and a child walk into the village would they be as hostile to a white man mm-hmm. and his wife and a child as they would to five men standing on a beach mm-hmm. now the men only took one gun there were two conscientious objectors of the five and three that had all been in the army so they'd all discuss this so we need to take one gun for self-defense plus there were panthers mm-hmm. and anacondas that you need to kill if sure. you're getting yeah. in your way <laughs> and so my the, my mother's suggestion was kind of just no we're going to do this mm-hmm. this is their plan and they'd been praying for it so they had thought through every possible how how to do this the strategy was thought well through and uh, my father prefabricated a tree house so that they four could sleep at a time in the tree house mm-hmm. one would stay on the beach with the gun through the night every four hours they'd change watch and would uh they weren't planning to kill any alcas they did not want to mm-hmm. kill the alcas but of course they needed just in case there were a panther he needed that gun so there was a a great visit within two days after they got there three alcas came out of the forest and nate had figured it was probably a couple of hours walk from where they had flown over and dropped Mm -hmm. gifts where he was able to land this plane on the beach and so they i'm sorry i'm losing my train of thought (laughs) um what was i saying so how did this happen three alcas came out. out yeah yeah so it was two women, older woman, younger woman, and a young man. And what we, what the men didn't know was that the older woman was there as a chaperone. The Alcas had a moral law that a young man and woman don't get together by themselves there to have a chaperone with them. So okay. they had sent, the father and the brother of this young woman had sent this chaperone with them. So they just stay the afternoon talking in their language, not knowing that the white men don't know any of the language except mm-hmm. we are your friends, we want to come meet you, or you come meet us, whatever he'd learned from Dayuma. And so they, they're they friendly, they give them food, they eat hamburgers, they drink lemonade. Um, George, they called one of the guys George, or the one man that had come, and George asks for a ride by gesturing mm-hmm. in the plane. Nate Saint takes him for a ride, goes over the village where he lived, he actually tries to open the door to get out because mm. he's low enough. And Nate, of course, pulls him back and says, no, you can't jump right. out. Um, so then the old older woman stays around and the young couple leave. Now, the problem was the father and the brother did not like the young man that she had chosen. So when she arrives back home and his family lives somewhere else, the young man's family, mm-hmm. he's not with her, but she's not brought the chaperone with her back home. So the father gets furious, the brother gets furious, says, we're going to go kill his family, Hmm. the young man's family, because they were probably a couple hours walk away too. And she says, no, please don't go kill them. Kill the white men. They're probably cannibals. So then they discuss this for a year, a a day and a half. Hmm. And the people that thought they might be cannibals were the ones that won. They decided, we don't know if they've been deceiving us all this time, giving Hmm. us gifts, just trying, acting like they're nice, but they're really not. So it was a surprise attack when Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, Nate had flown over the village, saw it was completely empty, and he radioed back to his wife, and he kept regular contact with her, always on the dot, called, 
and said, uh, it looks like the Alcas are coming to the beach for an afternoon service. He was mm-hmm. a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, of course, they didn't know the language. But he said, pray that they will come. So Marge radioed to the rest of the wives and said, they're hoping that they all come to the beach. And he said, I'll call you at 4.30. And 4.30 came and nothing happened. So mm-hmm. she kept on calling and through the evening till about 7.30. So from 4 to 7.30, 4.30 to 7.30, she didn't tell the wives yet. She just mm-hmm. kept hoping that sure. they would answer. And yeah. then at 7.30, she let them know. They didn't know they'd been killed. They hoped they might be held hostage. So for a couple of days, that was the thinking, that they were being held mm-hmm. hostage. They sent out a search party, which took all the way from Wednesday to Friday to get there. So that was a Sunday, January 8th. Wednesday was when they... Uh, left the search party mm-hmm. with missionaries and Indians, Quechua Indians, and they arrive Friday and they find four of the bodies in mm-hmm. the water, speared with so many spears that it kept the bodies wow. stuck into the ground. They had to pull them all out, and Poranas had eaten some mm-hmm. of them, so they had to line them up to figure out which body was which. But the fifth body mm-hmm. was Ed McCulley's, and that was f- so actually Mary Lou stayed in Puyupungu hoping that Ed was going to be coming back there. The rest mm-hmm. of the wives had come during the week to uh, to Shalmetta, which is where sure. the MAF um, station was. Hmm. Wow, we could keep talking about this story for a long time. And I know we're just about out of time. Yeah. One yeah. final question mm-hmm. for you. Um, what is it? What was it like for you formationally? And what has that been like for you growing up? Um, because... Your father is his story. It's been very well documented. Mm-hmm. Your mother's story mm-hmm. been very well documented mm-hmm. through books, even a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like for you? Did that put a pressure on you um, <laughs> to be uh, to try to fill his and his void, or did that make you resentful of well, what he did? No, or? there was no resentment and there was no anger at the outcomes because one, I was too little when I first went in to understand sure. what they had done. And my mother didn't really tell me till I was probably almost five, these are the men that killed. She didn't think it would do any good for me to know that. Um, so I just became friends with them right away. And there wasn't any reason for me to be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, you know, it was just sort of a puzzle and a wonder th- to me that these were the men that had killed my dad. But no, I was never resentful, never angry. The pressure was subconscious. I never thought to myself, oh, I've got so much to live up to. Right. It was simply, my parents were amazing, so I should be amazing too. Sure. You know, so it was a real uh, eye-opener to get married and find out sin is something you have to deal with every day. Because before that, I hardly had any conflict of any kind. Mm. So I think the pressure began with having children and thinking, I've got to have the perfect family. I had such wonderful parents. I had a very happy childhood. I'm secure, confident. Everything should go easily. And I just had not reckoned with my own sin, selfishness. I thought I'm going to be a great disciplinarian, but then I realized I don't really like to discipline them mm. because it hurts my feelings and hurts their feelings. And, you know, some people are more soft hearted than others. And I was very soft hearted, kind, and wanting to please. So cha- it was challenging to raise children, four of them very hard headed, stubborn, four of them pretty compliant. So God tested me and my husband. And I'm just very thankful that. I never felt resentful towards my parents mm-hmm. at all. Um, my mother 
when she could, she could come visit us, and she was wonderful with the children. She encouraged all of us. She prayed with us, prayed for us all the time. Of course, she loved her grandchildren, and um, I think the memorial service, which is on YouTube, the Wheaton College Memorial Service, really helps to see the whole story and see my mother's life um, because we had a video. And my oldest son talked at that memorial mm. service, and he was very close with my mother. So it was probably, I can't say it was the hardest on him, but close mm. to the hardest, and the second born also. She was named Elizabeth sure. after my mother. So, oh, okay. um, yeah, the, the standard, here's what I want to say, and we'll finish with this. The standard of perfection that they had made me think from the beginning that I had to somehow climb that ladder up to the perfection that they, to me, because they were so self-disciplined and so dedicated to being obedient to the Lord, I thought, God's never going to be really that pleased with me because I'm not as disciplined as they were. I just had a very different heart. Sure. So it wasn't until my husband and I studied the book of Galatians that I realized I'd been living to up to my idol ideals, which had become idols. My ideals were to have the perfect family, everybody happy and obedient, my husband and me perfectly in harmony, the church, everybody loving one another. Those were our ideals. But ideals can be turned into idols when you're really living for them so that people watch you and you hope they see how wonderful you are. Mm -hmm. So we had to repent of our idols, which had been our performance. We wanted to look good to other people. I never said that to myself. I want to look good to people, right. but it was a it was a pressure of, well, my parents were amazing, so of course our family should be amazing. So it was really understanding we had been living for our reputation and not for God's glory. Now, of course, I'd heard God's glory all through my life, but I don't think I'd ever thought through what it meant to die to my own wants or my own reputation. It was Christ's righteousness that was truly what God, he loved me because of Christ. Well, he loved me before the foundation of the world. He loved you before the foundation of the world. But Christ's righteousness was what made me perfectly acceptable to God. And so I finally realized I didn't have to climb that ladder, that God wasn't frowning at me all the time because I wasn't as disciplined as my parents, that he loved me completely, just like my mother had always taught me. But that realization of, okay, I'm a sinner, and every day I need to come to the cross to ask forgiveness. Mm -hmm. I think so many Christians think once they become Christians, then they're home free. But there's a daily struggle against sure. sin. And so daily I was learning that it wasn't about me and how well I did or my husband and how well he did. It was totally about what Christ could do through us. So that's what I'd like to finish with is that it's his reputation and his glory. And I didn't understand that till 15 years into marriage. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's fantastic. I'd love to keep talking with you. I know you yeah. got to go. So thank you so much for coming down You're on the welcome. Abstract Podcast. You're welcome. Very grateful for your speaking that you did. And You're God welcome. bless you as you keep um, doing what you do. You just wrote thank a book, you. too, a few yes, years ago. Devotedly. So, mm -hmm. Devotedly. So we'll put a plug in for just that as well. Just came out last uh, February. And I think my mother's most famous books, and you need to say her name again, but Elizabeth Elliot, she wrote Through Gates of Splendor and Shadow of the Almighty, and those have been in print since 1958. Wow. So that's a long time for that a book a to stay time. in print. But and I'm the, thankful, thankful yeah. that I can keep 
sharing what what they did and of course their their gift to me was their commitment to Christ you know so. that was their gift to a lot of people yeah. so thank, thank you very you. much for being You're on our welcome. show have a great day thanks for having me So that was my conversation with Valerie Shepard. Javen, you listened to it. What did you think? I just thought it was super cool that she was willing to sit down and, and have yeah. a conversation with us. Um, For sure. We got to hear her speak at community worship um, earlier the morning that you had the conversation with her. And then to hear her come and share a bit about her story and her parents' story again, it was really incredible. I think, I think out of everything, I mean, there, there was so much there, but mm-hmm. out of everything... The thing that I was just, man, just hit by the most was just the the attitude which her parents had towards serving God. Like, the mindset that they took towards their Christian faith. Like, it was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And you were the one, like, you sat down and talked with her. I mean, I'm sure you could feel that coming through, too. But I was just, yeah, just amazed at just yeah. the passion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, like... The part I really liked that she talked about towards the end is what it was like to live with um, parents that were like that. That were, I mean, they were the the face of missionary activity in the 20th yeah. century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as we heard, like they were just completely dedicated. God was the highest priority um, by far. And how she subconsciously had this pressure kind of grow on her um, to somehow fill those kind of... Uh, to fill that void that was left once um, her parents moved on. Um, and I thought that was really interesting for her to talk about the the big phrase was our ideals, her ideals became her idols. And she saw her ideals, how they were fleshed out by her father and by her mother. Um, but she found that as she tried to replicate that, um, they became idolatry. And she discovered yeah. that in motherhood. I thought that was, that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's also certainly a um, kind of a phenomenon that's not very common when, you know, the ideal that you're trying to live up to is your parents being, um, like, famous, (laughs) I don't know what the right word is, famous missionaries to, um, like, tribes in the Amazon, you know. It's a bit of an anomaly. (laughs) Right, yeah, that's that's a good word, an anomaly, yeah. But um, I think... You, I think we're able to carry that same passion to serving God wherever we're at. It's just that it's easy. It's probably easier to idolize it when it's like mm-hmm. taking the gospel to a hostile Indian tribe than when it is like, you know, whatever your dad actually is. Mm-hmm. But I, I think even still there are ideals that can easily become idols. Yeah, and that that is what I liked about her when she talked about community worship. She didn't talk about it as much in the interview. But she talked about... Um, doing the small things mm-hmm. um, as if they are the big things or, or that they're not there's not that difference that dichotomy between the small things for God or the big things for God she talked about like she talked about being on time for your classes yeah she um, made a big point of that yeah actually. yeah and um, I just thought that was really interesting how she she um, she would have it seems like she would have the space if anybody to talk about doing great things and pursuing this huge changing the world kind of thing. And she talked about being on time for class. Yeah, which seems like um, often people in that position tend to talk about that. Right. They, they say it's the small thing. Yeah, and like if anybody would have had that kind of space, it would have been her. But instead she talked about 
yeah, things like being on time, um, spiritual disciplines, yeah. um, those kinds of things. Which is cool because right. those are ways which we can all live to the glory of God, regardless whether we find ourselves in the jungles or going to class or whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah. And she talked about in the, for her, she discovered her own idolatry of ideals and kind of that the, mm-hmm. that part of what we're talking about as a mother, you know, a very ordinary task of yeah. um, raising children. And it was in that context she realized um, changes needed to come with how she viewed God and her communion with God. Um, Valerie also talked a bit about the book that she mm-hmm. recently wrote called Devotedly. And then she also made mention of some of her mother's books. Her mother was a prolific writer. I did not know um, she writing wrote over like 30, 30 books. some books. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. And two of the ones that she highlighted were um, Shadow of the Almighty and Through Gates of Splendor. Neither one of us has read really any of that material. but We know the story. Um, it sounds. And, but, yeah, go yeah. check them out. I think you can get them wherever books yeah, are sold. I would, I would really love to. I, I'm interested, actually, after, after we go from here to look more into this story. Mm. I've actually never watched End of the Spear, so just just to watch it mm-hmm. and, and see this story. But, yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, it was a pleasure having her here. So go out, be on time. Yeah. Um, be present with the people around you and love your neighbor. Be on time to the glory of God. That's right. All right, we'll see you guys. podcast. We'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week.